It's the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host. We have special guests from time to time tonight. No exception at all, Dr. Ryan. N.T. Ryan. You've heard of him. He's one of uh, the world's most prolific authors, thinkers, theologians, and he actually played rugby, too. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Now, a lot of people don't know about that, that you're, uh, you used to play rugby. Is that true? Well, yes. I, um, I was at a kind of school where they played all the sports that they could, and rugby and, um, was one of the main things, and uh, so we all pitched in. It was compulsory, actually, but I, I then took it to uh, another level. I played at county level when I was 19, um, uh, but then I gave it up when I was 21. I decided I'd been trampled on enough. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, your, your beautiful accent puts my Long Island accent to shame, you know, your London <laughs> accent. <laughs> That's for sure. So, yeah, exactly. So uh, now tell us, because you're always thinking, always writing, and looking at, uh, at Jesus, Christianity from a different view. Uh, what are you working on currently? Well, uh, right now I'm just finishing off the corrections and edits to a biography of Paul. I've obviously written several books on Paul, but uh, a biography is a bit different, trying to get inside his skin, figure out what made him tick, um, probe between the lines where he says, you know, that one point in Ephesus he was so crushed that he despaired of life itself, trying to figure out what that meant and what it did to his writing and his thinking and his praying. And and I found that an extraordinary effort because obviously I know a lot of the material quite well already, but trying to put the letters into a biographical framework and explain to the reader who may not be familiar with it um, why the complexities of the biographical stuff and the journeys and so on um, gave the particular spin that they did to the, um, to the letters themselves and vice versa. So that's been a fascinating task. Um, but I'm actually building up for a project for next year. I have to do the Gifford Lectures in Aberdeen. Hmm. Um, it's very rare that they ask a New Testament scholar to do that. It's normally a philosopher or a systematic theologian. And uh, so that's really going to be um, on, on Christ and creation. Um, and uh, there are various angles that I'm exploring there. So that, that's really quite a large project. You know, Dr. Wright, a lot of times Christians, they read the Bible, they read commentaries, and sometimes it gets a little stale after a while. But in your line of work and your gift in this, you're always thinking and looking at Christianity from a different view and, of course, helping the body of Christ look at, at Jesus from a different point of view. What are the challenges involved with that, or does it just come naturally? Well, um, th the thing is that all this is focused on something that actually happened in real time, in space-time matter history. And, of course, we all know that, that Jesus was a real person, that he did live and die and, Christians believe, rise, rise again in first century in the Middle East. Um, but comparatively few people stop to say, hang on, what was going on then? What did the kingdom of God mean then? If somebody said the phrase son of man, what would they have meant by it then? We've kind of allowed ourselves to be lulled into a sense that we vaguely know what this stuff means. Mm. And actually, we are more influenced usually by 19th century hymns, by 16th and 17th century theology. Now, you know, that's fine. I love that stuff. But it doesn't actually take you all the way back to where you need to go. And I have just found, ever since I started 
and my, my scholarly work as a historian, really, trying to get inside the skin of what's going on in the first century, I've always found that the more you do that, the more the stuff in the New Testament comes up in three dimensions. And it's not then rocket science to follow it through and say, well, if that's true, then what did this mean and how did that work and why did Paul write this letter? And I found again and again that I'm coming back saying things which are positive, which are basically orthodox. Um, you know, I'm a very boringly orthodox Christian um, <laughs> up and down, um, but which um, strike people in a fresh way because I say so many churches in the Western world, um, both um, sort of old-fashioned Anglo-Catholic and evangelical and charismatic, they've all kind of accepted uh, a package deal from the Western Enlightenment mm. in the last few hundred years of our culture. I would have to... really shrunk the message of the gospel. And so when you put it back in its historical context, I say there's all sorts of multidimensional things going on, and that, I think, is just inherently interesting and exciting, and certainly I've found that. I, I certainly agree with that. And, you know, the stories, even Bible study classes are, have gone down. They've shrunken in churches. And so learning the scriptures, learning the stories, the, the geographic locations, if you, you're getting into it, has been lost. And so I have to ask you, because, you know, you've made your life's work really, you know, being the, you know, the world's expert on Paul in particular. Okay, so I have to ask, as far as humanizing Paul and, and even comparing him to, to Jesus, um, what is it about Paul that you, in particular, do you see a little bit of yourself? Is there, what is it about Paul that, uh, that gets under your skin? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if I see a bit of myself or not, because I've been studying and teaching and preaching Paul for so long that I've kind of lived with him. So if there wasn't much of Paul in me before, there certainly is now, sort of 40 or 50 years down the track. Um, but I think what I now realize is so fascinating about him is that he's standing at the crossroads between several different worlds. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he is a, a soaked in the, the Scriptures Jew. He knows Genesis to, to uh, Malachi extremely well. He prays the Psalms. He knows Deuteronomy. He's got Isaiah under his skin, etc., etc. But he moves easily and effortlessly between them and pulling them together. But he is doing this um, at the, uh, as somebody who was born and raised initially, at least in Tarsus, which is one of the major centers of Greek philosophy. And he sometimes sounds like a Greek philosopher, so much so that some people have said maybe he really was a Stoic in disguise. And he's quite happy to give you that impression one minute, and then on the next page, make it clear that actually that's not where he's going at all. And he's, he, but he, he, he lives at the confluence of Greek philosophy, so he knows the Stoics. Um, he, he's just on the cusp of Middle Platonism, people like Philo and Plutarch. And though he's not agreeing with them, there's all kinds of stuff going on. So he's got the Greek, the Jewish environment, he's got the Greek world, but he's also a Roman citizen, just at the time when the whole Roman world is being um, encouraged to see itself as one single family under one emperor, namely Augustus, who is now divine, and actually by the time Paul is writing, it's uh, Claudius and then Nero. But uh, So, so here, here's a man who's multicultural, and we live in a multicultural age, and it's often very confusing, and Paul is actually showing us how we can navigate that, but of course at the middle of it all, he sees Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel, and Paul sees him as the clue to the truth 
that the Greeks were after and never quite got to. And he sees him as the true lord of the world, of which the Roman emperor is just a parody. So you have religion, you have philosophy, you have politics, you have culture, and it's all swirling together. And of course, the real fun with Paul is that he is uh, a a rambunctious intellectual, and I mean (laughs) both of those words together, because he's not just an intellectual sitting in a study thinking great thoughts, you know, like Immanuel Kant or somebody somebody like Mm -hmm. that, very difficult to read. He's out on the street, he's in the shop, he's in a lecture hall arguing with all comers, and you can feel that happening. He's an exciting person to be with. And I think anyone in the first century who met Paul, the one thing they wouldn't have said about him was that he was dull. And I think today, anyone who really takes even a little bit of time to study Paul, the one thing you wouldn't say, you might disagree with him, you might find some bits difficult, but he's not dull. He keeps you alive and alert. I I agree with that. And I was going to say also, when you read the New Testament, it seems like, you know, he's willing to risk his life. And you you talked about how the church makes it kind of almost too easy sometimes, you know, with I'll just say, you know, topical Christianity, if you will, not really getting into the nuts and bolts of the geography, maybe even Hebrew and Greek. But um, when it comes to Paul, uh, you know, he's got a lot of a lot of he's willing to risk his life i mean have you ever felt that way would yeah. you and you would you oh, oh, risk yes. your life I mean, and be in chains uh, in the gospel life. yes no, i've had a relatively comfortable life i mean you know being a, an academic and a, and a clergyman is is comfortable in one way it's not comfortable financially because we, um in, in britain we don't pay clergy and academics that well your books do pretty well <laughs> um, i've been able to, to to feed my family more or less and, and all the rest of it but um uh, I, I have found sometimes it's been an awkward place to be, um, being an academic and being a practicing Christian, because, of course, there are some in the academic world, including in the theological academic world, who really don't want Christian commitment to, to rear its head, and who, if they smell that coming through uh, in the academic work, then they will sneer at it and write bad reviews and so on. And in some cases, if you take a principled stand on, say, orthodox Christology, you know, the, the full divinity and humanity of Jesus, as I've always done and tried to make that as clear as possible, or indeed on some of the contemporary moral issues, then you get all kinds of flack um, and unpleasant things get said and, and, and so on. But, I mean, that, this is as nothing compared with what Paul faced. You know, I haven't had to be stoned. I haven't had to be shipwrecked. Um, <laughs> I haven't been beaten. Um, so, in a sense, I've had it easy. Um, and, please God, will continue to do so, because as we speak, there are people around the world who are being, yes. as we know, are being killed for their Christian faith. And there are brave martyrs out there, and Paul will be proud of them. So, I mean, but I, I have found, um, in different ways, we comfortable Western clergy and academics, there are other ways in which things can strike us, family difficulties or depression or whatever. And I've had my fair share of bits and pieces of that. But as I say, no, nothing like what Paul had to go through. And my admiration for him just grows and grows. I want to ask you a question. This may sound off beat, if you will, but uh, do you have like a a feeling of of mentoring even uh, uh, do you have a love for kids um well i yes i've always enjoyed teaching and some of my happiest hours have been in the classroom um and 
watching the lights go on in people's faces as something suddenly clicks into place. And right now I've had a string of very bright PhD students, which has been terrific. Um, and I'm enjoying that and enjoying, again, watching them um, you know, spread their own wings and learn to fly and think their own thoughts. And that's, that's really exciting when they come up with ideas that you've never imagined, but you've kind of given them permission to do so by, by helping them develop their basic skills. Yeah, I, you know, you listen to a lot of pastors today. They almost I mean, a lot of them sound like they have ADHD, if you will. And sometimes the thoughts don't come out as easy for you. They do. I mean, for writing and talking. And of course, you're on the lecture circuit. Which one is easier for you? Which writing or talking? Yes. Well, um, both in a way, because I write as I talk. Um, but obviously, when you write, you have to go back and correct as well. Whereas when, when you just <laughs> say something, that's it out there. Um, I enjoy both. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've done a fair amount of lecturing in various places over, over the years. Um, my, my mother always did say to me that I, I had too much to say for myself, but too much of a gift of the gab, if you like. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that the fluency with words is something which you're born with, really. I agree. It's like, you know, I happen to have a double-jointed left thumb. Uh, that's not a virtue. It's just something I was born with. And in the same way with words, having fluency with words doesn't necessarily mean you're right or, or talking sense. You have to prove that as you go along. Um, so, um, Double-jointed uh, yeah, thumb, is I, that I from a rugby or I've no? If I've been given <laughs> a gift there, then that, that's something to be used, and that's what I've tried to do. Yes, and you certainly have. I was just kidding, though. I was going to ask you if that double-jointed thumb happened from a rugby hit. No, actually, um, I did once break a finger playing rugby, but um, it wasn't even on that hand. <laughs> See, and I'll bet you people are surprised to find that you did that. You know, they probably didn't. That's a lot. And speaking of which, what are some things, you know, because you get interviewed all the time, what, what are some things that people really don't know about you? Well, it's um, a good question. It depends who you ask. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. Um, I, I was a musician. I still very occasionally um, drag the old guitar out and blow the dust off it and play the odd song from the 60s, because like most people who grew up in the 60s in a certain culture, we were all strumming along and playing with uh, Peter, Paul and Mary or Bob Dylan or Joan Baez. And so actually my wife and I met through singing together in a Christian folk concert in Oxford really? in the uh, late 60s. So that was really our vintage. I suspect some people do know that now because I've done that a bit recently in the States because of um, being with Francis Collins at Biologos. He's a great guitarist, and so he's got me playing and singing. But I don't do that very often. Um, but, yeah, I, I, you know, I was an outdoor child. I loved climbing hills and still do if I get the chance. And, as I say, playing all the sports that I could. Um, and uh, I kind of scraped by academically. It was only when I was at student age that I suddenly discovered just how much I enjoyed the philosophy and the ancient history, which I was studying. I'd always sort of enjoyed it, but I really got into it then because I was too busy before doing all the other things, playing cricket and rugby and squash and, <laughs> and playing the piano and the trombone and the guitar and everything mm. else. So, yeah, I had a, I had a very a very uh, rich childhood full of all kinds of things. And I wish now I'd spent a little bit longer in the libraries. I would have learned a bit more that would have stood me in good stead. But I've tried to make up for it since then. Well, you're very approachable. I'm sure people are probably surprised just how much you, or are you approachable. I imagine you come across that way. Are people surprised about that? Well, um, perhaps. But, I mean, that's partly because most scholars are introverts because it's easier to be a scholar if you're an introvert because you like spending long hours by yourself in the library. Whereas I'm obviously an extrovert. I, I get energy from being with people. So I will dive into the library and do what has to be done, and then I'll want to come out and have lunch with somebody or long coffee or something and, and just 
bash ideas around. So, yeah, I like being with folk, and um, I, I don't see what's so surprising about that. It may just be that, um, that, yeah, as I say, some scholars are naturally quiet and a bit shy and withdrawn, and I've, I've never been like that. When you look at, like, your life, this I'm not trying to get you depressed or anything, but, you know, you look at time, okay, because we all have limited time in this, in this life here. Do you, do you have ideas that, you know, I'm not talking about so much of a bucket list, but when it comes to the kind of works that you have to put out there, do you feel compelled that, you know, I've got to write about this, I feel it's in my heart? There's a few things that I still do want to do. Um, for ages, I've been supposed to be writing a commentary on Galatians, and if um, the editors who commissioned it are listening to this podcast, then, hi, guys, I know you're out there, and it's, <laughs> it's still going to come soon, I hope. Um, and there are one or two other things. There's a commentary on Philippians I'm supposed to be writing as well, and I love doing that stuff, that exegesis. It's, it's meat and drink to me, but uh, those are projects which, for a year or two down the road... Um, there are one or two other quirky things that I want to do, but actually, you know, I'm 68 now. I'm going to be 69 in six months' time, and uh, I'm looking forward, uh, not exactly to retirement, because I don't think I'll ever really retire as a writer and speaker, um, as long as my mind is reasonably active. Um, I'm going to be, God willing, staying here in St. Andrews till 2020 when I turn 72, Amen. and then we'll review at that point. Um, but I would like to travel to one or two places I haven't been to. I'm a great fan of the music of Jean Sibelius, the great Finnish composer. I've never been to Finland. I would love to go to Helsinki to see Sibelius's house, to hear some, some of his music played in that great city. As I've never been to that part of the world. Um, I would like to climb the Scottish mountains again because I used to climb them a lot in the days of my youth. And now that I live in Scotland, I would like to make time to do that. I would especially like, I would especially like to bring my golf handicap down. Um, <laughs> it'll probably never get into single figures, but I'd like to bring it down into the low teens as well. That would be very nice. <laughs> well, you know, my dad, he's a retired dentist and he's been trying forever to bring it down into the, uh, you know, those lower digits and it's never been, yeah. but you know. Um, so I have well, to. You can have a lot of fun trying. That's yeah, the he does. Golf. Some <laughs> sports, if you if you play tennis as badly as I play golf, it'd be really boring because the ball would be going out or in the net all the time. Yes, but um, it, with golf, you can still have a good time, and that's what I try to do. I agree, and you know, you should probably tell directly to people who are listening, seminary students. You know, get out once in a while. You know, take a breath of fresh air. It probably clears your head and do yeah. right better. I'm sure when you do so, all that. that. It's actually it's actually true. Um, scientific studies have shown that walking, um, whether you're swinging a golf club or not, but a serious walk, like somewhere between five and ten miles, is actually really, really good for the thinking processes. And certainly, I don't do that enough, but I know that when I do. Um, some point after about four miles, um, the brain works in a different way. And sometimes, not every time, of course, but sometimes things suddenly click into place. And then I always take a notebook with me when I go for a long walk because you just never know. Sometime you'll suddenly see something clearly and then you have to sit down and write it out quickly and, and at least make some jottings um, because those are golden moments. And walking does bring that on. I have to ask you, you were on the Colbert Report with Stephen Colbert, and, um, you know, people are surprised to find that he has a real love for, for the Lord, you know, and, and his, in particular... I'm, yes, I mean, we didn't talk about his faith when, when I was on the show, but I gather he is a practicing lay Roman Catholic. That's right. And teaches Sunday school in his church. 
and uh, uh, he's a very smart guy. I know he's got into trouble recently because yeah. <laughs> I didn't actually see what he was, but he said some funny things about Donald Trump. That's apparently. right. I mean, the, the guy's hilarious, and he's amazingly <laughs> creative. Um, and uh, he, he was uh, a laugh a minute to do the interview with because I had no idea what was coming next. <laughs> so I just had to roll with the punches and yeah. try and get my own in, uh, in response. And I think he enjoyed that. It was, it was good fun. Oh, I agree. But, um, yeah, he, he gave, it was my book, Surprised by Hope. When that came out, I think it was 2008, um, I flew over to New York um, for 24 hours and did the interview, flew back again, and that was great fun. And, of course, it worked because um, Surprised by Hope shot up the charts on Amazon, and it's been one of my <laughs> best sellers ever since. So I wish he'd pick up one or two of my others. <laughs> Stephen, if you're listening, you know, call N.T. Ryan, Dr. Ryan, right now, you know, and, uh, but people were well, saying, we'll that. yes, and people were saying you held your own. Uh, with him, which is, they well, say yeah, it's I almost so, impossible because, to do. Yeah, I'm used to doing that. I've been in very serious debates and discussions with plenty of people in Parliament in Britain and elsewhere, because, you know, when I was bishop, I was in the House of Lords in London. So you, you kind of, you get used just to hearing what somebody is saying and coming right back, and you have to, that, that's how the game is played. Yeah. I want to ask you something, because I know it's in your heart. You know, you, you prepare not only seminary students, because, of course, you're a professor, and, you know, of course, we should mention the, you know, the former um, Bishop of Durham. You know, people, of course, yeah. they know that. But uh, what do you think is missing with pastors today? I mean, I'm talking about um, personal development, training, studying. Is there is there something that burdens your heart as far as how can they develop? Is that where you kind of come in? Our cultures are so different, and I travel a bit in America, and I'm always jealous because in America you have much more uh, rich seminary training than we do here. And I mean, the, the diversity of, of uh, courses on offer and, and the range of people you have teaching, etc., um, some wonderful um, possibilities in America, which we really don't have. And also, in your churches, you have a tradition in America, in many churches, of adult lay education, adult Sunday schools and so on, which we really don't have at all. And I think that keeps pastors on their toes in America. But I know that, uh, as well, there are many different bits of American subculture right across the board, from um, mainstream to evangelical to fundamentalist and lots of other um, angles and diversities as well. And so it's very hard to generalize. Um, I go back again and again to the, to the old familiar things, which we all learned as children but can easily drift away from. I was in a seminary in uh, St. Mary's in Baltimore, actually, a big Catholic seminary, two or three years ago, and talking to a large crowd there, and they were asking me questions and somebody said what are the two or three top things that uh, clergy need to know when they're training and i said this is very boring and obvious they have to know the bible inside out upside down mm. and to and fro um, absolutely it's, it's got to be their book they have to learn to pray their socks off and they have to learn to love people and those three and the seminary president who was sitting there he burst out he said this is what i've been telling our young men and i said good it's it's, it's obvious but we can take it for granted, and then it kind of slides, and people don't read their Bible as much as they should, or they think they vaguely know it, and then they actually haven't read that bit for the last five years. And so, you know, you need to be on your toes. The Bible every year, uh, straight through, and um, detailed study on specific bits all the time. There is no let-up. And praying likewise. There is no day when the pastor should not be in prayer for his or her people. Um, it, 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 and, but learning to love people really matters as well, because sadly a lot of dysfunctional people go into ministry, <laughs> and they can function quite well. I'm raising my hand. But then when they get one-on-one or with a small group, they can actually lose it and lose the plot and not realize how they're coming across. So, and this is something you can learn.
learn. It isn't just something you're born with. You may be born with it, but it really helps to work at it and learn, learn it as well. So these are the most basic and obvious things, but they're still, you know, when I, as a bishop, I had 250 parishes in my care, and I would go around, and some of the clergy, I have to say, were, were not as highly educated as I wish they would have been. They weren't as cultured as I wish they'd been. But when I thought, why are people coming to this church? The answer is because this person, this woman, this man, actually loves these people and puts themselves out. And when the baby is sick, they're there. And when granny dies, they're the ones that do mm. the funeral and visit the family. And it's that love which then carries them through. And it, it, it's yes. an old cliche, but, but that's actually still the, the truth. That was so beautiful what you said, and I have a feeling a lot of people are going to listen to that over and over and over again, because that's from years of experience and, and heart. And I was going to ask you about being the Bishop of Durham, you know, because people... Uh, I don't know, a couple things like gossip, infighting, you know, things happen that people aren't expected. And even in seminary, you know, they, they say, okay, you need to learn, if you will, people skills. But as you said, very underdeveloped when they get into the, to the you know, yeah. mucky muck, if and, you will. <laughs> in a sense, there's some things you can only learn on the job. You can be warned about them in advance. Yes. But it's only when you actually run up against them that, that it happens. And, and, of course, one of the things that happens um, in any job, it happens in the law, it happens in the police, it happens in, in the military, is that you get people who are uh, seen to make it their business to make life difficult for other people, and they may not mean to, but that's the sort of people they are. And the church attracts people like that, too. And some of them are highly functional, and some of them are highly dysfunctional, but they can be devastating if you're sitting next to them, or if they decide they're going to stir a bit, and so on. So wherever you are, in whichever profession, but certainly in the church, there are going to be some people who will make life really difficult for you, and the, the yes. worst of it is that they probably think that you're making life difficult for them. So it's back to, you know, some pretty basic stuff. However, um, uh, I've often said to people, my privilege as a bishop, because I had 250 parishes I was working with, I was able several times in every week to see churches that were functioning well and places where in areas of great deprivation, because the northeast of England where I was working is part is really old Rust Belt territory, steel and shipbuilding and coal all used to be big things and are now all gone. And there's a lot of unemployment, a lot of poverty, a lot of deprivation. But watching the church on the ground doing what the church is good at doing, working with people, with, with um, disadvantaged people, with communities of, of people in despair. And the interesting thing was the local councils, the local authorities, knew that the church was there on the ground doing the tough stuff. So they would come to us for advice and help and for, to work together on projects for the whole community because they knew that the church was, to use the wrong image, punching above its weight. And I'm really proud of that, that these are not people that will ever make it into the news, these clergy, these local lay folk, but they're actually being the church on the ground. And yes. it was one of the privileges of my life to see that and to pray with those folk and to support them and encourage them. Yes. And I couldn't ask for a, for a finer thing to do, really. Yeah, and people can hear your heart, I can certainly. And, you know, because you say that you're going like head first into dysfunction, into a broken world, and you have to have that yeah. love. And it really, that's what's really developed. And, and that separates, you know, the wheat from the chaff, if you will. And so. It, it, 
it really does. I mean, at the opposite extremes of the diocese, in the largely rural areas, we had farming communities that had been devastated because the foot and mouth disease had struck, which is a terrible animal disease. And there were farms that had gone bankrupt because they couldn't shift their stock and having to kill off their cattle and sheep. There were farmers who were committing suicide, etc. And I, I, my wife and I remember going and, and being with the clergy, being with the people. And actually, one time the Archbishop of York came to visit and we took him right up to the top of the bales to the farming communities to make it clear that the church was listening and the church was finding ways of helping and then being able to go straight from there into the Houses of Parliament in London and to knock on people's doors and say, don't you realize what's going on? We need to work at this. That was an amazing privilege to be able to make those bridges. But then the other end of the diocese, the, 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 the Rust Belt bits that I spoke about, where there, I remember one housing estate where there was no social worker who would live near the place, but there was a church worker, actually a middle-aged woman, who was a brave lady, who everybody knew her, everybody trusted her. She was tough as nails, but she was showing the love of God to the really, really heartbreaking places. And, uh, you know, th there are people like this out there doing that job, and that's what the church is all about. Yes. And the task of exegesis and theology that I now spend my life doing is really to resource those people, to be the bone marrow for what they're doing. And if I thought I wasn't supplying that, then what on earth would I be doing what I'm doing for? Yeah. Do you get upset sometimes, or not upset, but just perplexed when people kind of make a sport out of theology rather than bring it into the heart, as you're saying, an, an application yeah, I mean, of real life? That's true. You have to, there has to be to and fro, because every academic subject, you know, somebody does a paper in a conference and uh, you get excited about the minutiae, there's a text-critical issue and you think you see a new way through, etc., etc., and you're probably two or three or four moves, chess moves away from doing anything that will actually make a difference to somebody's life. But part of the fun of the game is that, like a chess player who can see three or four moves ahead, then you can see, well, wait a minute, if in Galatians 4, we read this rather than that with this manuscript, and then if we look at the passage this way, then it gradually, gradually builds up. And the art of being a theologian, I think, is being able to enjoy the rough and tumble of that at that level, while knowing that you are only two or three moves away from something which will turn into a sermon or a pastoral interview or whatever. Now, of course, uh, if people get so stuck on the game playing, then it can become dry and it can become arid and it can become actually counterproductive. People think, oh, Bible, what's, what's the point of this? But, but actually then, um, it doesn't take long to bring it back and say, no, 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 this, this is what this text actually means. And that's why it's been such fun to go back to it, writing this biography of Paul, because all the nitty-gritty and which boat did he take from where to when and why and what was all that about. Um, but nevertheless, what living with a human being here who's got a beating and a praying heart and is puzzled about why his friend hasn't showed up yet and he's worried about how he's going to take the money to Jerusalem and all of this stuff. And he's writing these amazing letters that, that still you can leap with life off the page today. Okay, so I have to ask you a question. When you have a high IQ, and come on, both you and I know you have one. <laughs> so I, I have well, to... I, I, I've never had it measured, but if you say so. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I want to ask, is it more fun to hang around? Like, you know, do you have, are you friends with, like, in the States, I think of someone like you, like Dr. Timothy Keller. Is he a friend of yours? I know Tim a bit, not well. We've um, shared platforms at conferences and so on. We, we, we've got on really well, you know. Uh, I think there are some things we would do a bit differently, but, but yeah, he's, I guess he's a bit older than me as well. Is he early 70s now? Maybe not. I'm not sure. Maybe misjudging that. 
But um, a guy I really like to hang out with is Francis Collins, who I mentioned before at the Biologos. He's a really obviously a top scientist he's also a very good musician but just a really nice guy to be with and uh, so i do have some good academic friends because I, I guess sometimes people are surprised to find that like you said you may i don't know go i don't you won't go to the pub that's for sure but you know just locally uh meet with people why, perhaps why, why not excuse me well <laughs> that's true uh, well no i was going to say that um you know everyday but folks most, most weeks in st andrews as soon as we finish the seminar we go 100 yards down the road and up the pub and uh, we carry on the <laughs> seminar there amen wow see people don't know that i didn't know that <laughs> and then that, that brings you know uh social lubrication also you know brings po- people closer together but um so i just well, yes, yes. I, I didn't know if it's easier to talk to like your everyday guy and people are intimidated by you or you'd rather be talking to other scholars it varies there are some scholars who I find terribly boring to talk to, um, <laughs> you know, because they, they just uh, are not on the same wavelength. For and this is not a value judgment. It's just we're different sorts of people. Um, but there's a lot of people who you describe as ordinary guys who I get on with absolutely splendidly. I mean, most of the members of my family are not academics. Um, and my youngest brother, for instance, is a banker. And we get on splendidly. We could talk all night about all kinds of things, about politics, about sport, whatever it might be. We, we just get on. And I, I've had lots of friends down the years in, in that bracket who are just nice people to hang out with. And uh, um, my wife certainly isn't a theologian at all, any way, shape, or form. And the friends that we have that are friends of ours together, um, most of them are not academics. Um, and, and why should they be? You know, if I was a nuclear physicist, I wouldn't expect all my other friends to be nuclear physicists. You know, it's funny, because I could talk to you forever. You're, I'm, I'm getting along. If, you know, <laughs> I've made a friend uh, tonight, that's for sure, and we've enjoyed having you on the program. I have just one more question. Do you think it helps your writing at all, or would it, to travel to some of the places that you write about? Well, I have done that a bit. I'd love to go more to Greece and Turkey to, in the steps of St. Paul. I've done one trip like that, but that was 20-plus years ago. I'd love to go back and visit Ephesus again, Philippi, etc., Athens, of course. Um, I've been to the Holy Land many times, been to Jerusalem and Galilee many times, and that every time I go, more things click into place. And the first time I went, which is in 1989, that was an absolute revelation. I could hardly believe all the things I was learning just by being there. It really, really does help. Well, being the former Bishop of Durham, and of course now you're the professor, you've been for a while, the professor of St. Andrews, it would be foolish of me not to ask you just to pray for the body of Christ in a, in a way that you feel it's on your heart, and, and we sure appreciate sure. you being on the program. Thank you. Let me do that. Gracious Father, thank you for this chat. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for my brothers there across the Atlantic and all the work that they're doing. We pray for the Church, for its health, for its wisdom, for its prayer life. It's being soaked in the scriptures for its witness, its public face, its wisdom in speaking into the culture, and above all for its love, its love for the least, its love for the lost, its love for the people at the bottom of the pile. We pray that you revive your church in new ways in this generation and call us to whatever tasks you have to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dr. N.T. Wright has been our special guest and one of the most prolific authors and thinkers of theologians. And so you've been such a blessing. I feel like I've made a friend. Can I call you N.T. from now on? Well, uh, feel free, but actually most of my friends do just call me Tom. Tom. That's even better. (laughs) Thanks for being on the program. God bless you. Okay. Good to be with you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, then. Bye-bye. So if you enjoyed this interview, and I hope you did, and you want to learn more about Dr. N.T. Wright, you can go to www.ntwrightonline.org. 
and learn about some of his online courses. It's your official site for information regarding online classes that are being developed by Professor N.T. Wright of St. Andrews. And also, N.T. Wright for everyone's study guides. Just check out ivpress.com.